Hey, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We have a guest today, and honestly, he doesn't really need an introduction. Uh, Tim Topham is one of the OGs in our industry in terms of that early batch of bloggers and video creators and just creators in general. Um, obviously, he has the topmusic.co website. And Tim, I'm pretty sure you're this year's keynote speaker at MTNA, isn't that correct? I am, yes. Kind of terrifying but very humbling and exciting at the same time. So he, you can find him, obviously, at the website I just mentioned. He owns the number one podcaster industry, Integrated Music Teaching Podcast, and I'm pretty sure he's got a 1,000-plus teachers that have joined his membership, Top Music Pro. Um, and on a personal note, I will say, just being real here, Tim is a very generous person. When I was first starting out in 2015, I reached out to him. I was nobody um, he had no idea who I was. I reached him out of the blue and asked him to read my very first ebook that I wrote. And he made some really nice, encouraging comments to me, <laughs> even endorsed the ebook. That original endorsement is actually still up on my blog. Um, so, <laughs> That's Tim, cool. welcome. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Thank you. That's, it's really cool to, well, to uh, well, meet Nate. Obviously, I've known you for ages, Daniel. Really cool to meet you both together on this. And I've been a listener to this podcast for quite some time. So I really rate what you're doing. I think it's a real, you've hit a spot in the market that that needs, or that can, you know, really value lots of support and ideas. And, you know, you keep coming up with these topics. I'm like, you know what? I don't actually have a school and employ teachers, but I'm going to listen to that because I just, <laughs> I just think it's going to be interesting. It's like how do leases work and how do you keep your employees and should they be contractors? All this, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to listen. I'm just interested. So yeah, keep, yeah. keep up the great work. Uh, yeah, for sure. You know, and honestly, could do it without Nate because obviously Nate has boots on the ground, that giant school in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Music Factory. Um, and so he and I, we put our heads together and come up with some good topics, right, Nate? Yeah, Tim, so happy to have you on here too. You know, my first introduction to you, Tim, was through our private lesson director at BMF, who's a super fan of yours. And he shared some really awesome episodes where you were talking about uh, – uh, on your podcast, talking about practicing and just talking about rethinking how we use the term practice. And when we take a look at your uh, most recent creative endeavor, your book, um, but you talk about reframing even the word from practice to play. And um, so anyways, through our private lecture director, Ben, he's he introduced me to you. And and so I'm just psyched that we're hanging out today. And, Very cool. And we're going to talk about what you do and... and um, get into it together. So thanks so much for being here. No problem. Here. Yeah, it's great. Hopefully we'll meet in person one day. Oh, we will. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, so Nate brings up a good point. And the reason why we're doing this episode, Nate, I've listed all those accomplishments before, but you've got a new one to add to your name in 2024. You're publishing a book. Right. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about this. Can you tell us about the book? Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. I, I, I've look for a long time. My work around uh, helping teachers has all been about why are we doing things the way that we're doing? Uh, is that the best way to do things? And if it's not, then why don't we change things up a little bit and do things differently? And in the process, maybe we're going to get some better musical outcomes from our students. And so this actual journey uh, to the book, which is all about just a book, super simply, it's for music teachers, piano teachers specifically, it's how to teach your beginner lessons without teaching reading in lesson one. Because, and, and I was, in fact, I was just at a conference speaking yesterday and I got all the teachers to put up their hand, who 
learned when they went to their first lesson whose teacher got out the method book and pointed at middle C and showed them where it was on the piano and said, right, we're going to play middle C. And 90% of the hands went up. And I said to them, well, okay, well, how did that go for you? Was that do you, looking back, do you think that's a really fun, imaginative, musical, creative kind of way <laughs> to start a lesson? And everyone's like, well, no, of course not. So what do we do instead? The challenge though is that If I just say, and even if everybody listening agrees, yeah, we should probably not do that. We should probably do something else. The challenge is, what do you do instead? And for teachers who are brought up in, and piano, lots of piano teachers are brought up in a very traditional kind of sense, even if you say, and even if they agree, this is a great idea, unless we actually sort of step them through a process, it's kind of impossible for them to know what to do. And so that's how the book came about. Uh, and the book really takes teachers through a super structured five weeks worth. And it's actually a whole 10 lessons so they can get access to the rest of the lessons if they want. But I give them five full massive lessons with step-by-step, here's what to say, here's what to do, here are the accompaniments, here are the backing tracks, here's everything you need to know so that you can actually wow. get started and do this. Because I want more teachers in the world to try this out because he's having a huge impact on the students that, that have this approach given to them at the start. What what are you seeing happen with students when, when they go through these 10 lessons? Let's just start there, actually. Okay, well, you're going to have students who, number one, want to play the piano uh, when they go home. And we've had plenty of teachers say that they have their parents struggling to get their students or their children off the piano and to shut them up because they're playing so much, which is super cool. <laughs> so, number one, you're going to get this engagement. You're going to get curiosity. So, the students are going to start asking questions and, and wonder why things sound like they do, and they're going to explore, be more exploratory. Some of the big things, though, that we're seeing further down the track in a, in a few years' time for these students is that one of, one of the big things that particularly piano students don't get uh, introduced to early on is singing. And we all know the power of singing. Singing is just critical. If you can sing, you can play better. There's, there's just so many great things that come from singing. But piano students generally don't get asked to sing. And so particularly over here in Australia, we have an exam-based system where lots of students do exams. And part of that, they have to do oral tests. So they've got to sing back something that they hear or clap back a rhythm or hum a melody or whatever it is. And and that, they, they just... This is like deer in the headlights. So it's like, what do I do? I don't know. I've never done this before. So I really wanted to provide a framework where singing is normalized right from the beginning. They're just singing every lesson. They're chanting. They're doing rhythm clapbacks. They're pitch matching notes on the piano. They're singing a note and finding it on the piano, just getting the oral connection happening. And then this over time builds up because then students a few years down the track go, well, of course I can play by ear. I've been doing this since lesson one. So sure, well, let's let's do that. So this, that's just a, you know, a couple of ideas that come to mind on that part. Tim, that reminds me of, we, we're in the middle of high school auditions in New York City. It's sort of like, it's a little bit of a barely controlled chaos as students move from elementary school to middle school to high school. <laughs> but we have these great arts high schools. Actually, both my daughter went, both my daughters went to LaGuardia High School, which is what the the movie Fame was based on this oh, high wow. school, for those listening that might have gone way back to that. Um, but at any rate, you get actually a callback if you want to get into the music program. And guess what the two things you have to do in the callback are? You don't even have to play your instrument. The only thing you have to do is pitch match, do oral 
listening and repeating and rhythm matching. Right. Right. That's the only two things that they do mm. to uh, as the final criteria to try to get in. Um, How sad would it be you if you're a, a phenomenal player and that caught you at the end? <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh. Exactly, Tim. And you use the word normalize, which is just like the, to me, that's just the best possible word. It's because you, and you talk about this some in your book, but this idea of, 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 of treating music truly as a language and from the very beginning, normalizing all aspects of the fluencies, you know, right. clapping, singing. Um, and I just love that. I really, really appreciate that piece of it. And I think one of the things that struck me in reading your book was, Tim, was this idea of like, no, 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 let's not wait three months. Let's not wait three years. You know, actually in the traditional lesson, ear training, um, and I call it brain training, but music theory doesn't even really appear for a decade <laughs> into the journey. Sometimes doesn't. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, even, it sometimes never even does. for piano students, uh, chords uh, are often not found in method books full stop, or if they are, it's book four, five, or six, you know, it's way down the track. And a lot of teachers have stopped using method books by that stage. So, yeah, there's lots of, I mean, and, and look, I, I don't want to bash method books. Method books are the best way, hands down, structured, scaffolded, amazing way to teach reading. There is no doubt. They're great. So I'm not bashing method books. All I'm saying, and I know you weren't suggesting that, but I just want to make it clear. All I'm saying is let's just delay that. They can get to reading later on. There's so many more musical, fun, exciting things that we can do first. Right. And you're not saying, you're literally, you're just saying, hey, guys, how about the first 10 weeks? At maximum. Right. Yeah. You assume, yeah, you're not, we're, we're like, can I rewind tape for a second to a word you used that I think is really important? Um, you said that, uh, you know, we're looking you when you asked at the at the conference you were at the other day. You asked the teachers, "Was this an imaginative approach?" Right. And I think that that's like a super important word for us to zero in on for a minute, because you're honoring the fact that for some of the teachers in the audience, they're saying, "Hey, wait a minute! I, I actually I'm not sure what the alternate is." Mm. And so um, it sort of raises this idea, and I just I'd love to hear you talk about this because you spend so much quality time and the work hmm. you do on thinking about um, a creative approach, an alternative approach, right? Not an instead of, but just saying like, hey, here's some other options. Um, what do you think about this notion? Because this has come up for me uh, around teaching, which is just sort of like, and you hear about this in other facets, but this sort of like crisis of imagination. Like, in other words, in the area, era of the internet where answers are so readily available, we say, here you go, take this and just do it. And as a result, we find ourselves in the space where um, we're kind of like losing touch with that muscle, with this idea of, hey, like, let's actually just be open and creative and imaginative in our efforts. I'm just curious what you think about that and if, if that's come across in your work too, this notion of like, hey, we need to actually flex this more. Mm. I firmly believe that that is a true statement. And if you look at school education uh, more generally, I mean, there's not a lot of encouragement to do creative things. It's passing tests and sticking those boxes and the teachers have to teach the curriculum that's set and all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, how are we going to encourage creativity in students? 
if we're not, if that's never going to be an outcome of anything that they're, you know, t- tested in inverted commas on. Tricky question for schools. Much easier question for studio owners, even if you have multiple teachers underneath right. you, because you're in control. There is no one telling you, be that good or bad, what you have to teach or this is the curriculum. So you get to set that tone. And and I hope, and I know that there's lots of studio owners listening who may employ piano teachers. And this book, while is is set out for piano teachers, can be and has been used by teachers of other instruments as well just taking the concepts, you have that opportunity to go, hey, guys, or, or to all of your team, let's just actually talk about what happens in those first few lessons because ultimately the, the way that we set things up right at the beginning will lead to better attention down track if we get this right. Poor teaching at the start, students waver, they stop playing, they quit, and everyone, it's just a complete waste, wasted energy. So... I think we're lucky as one-on-one teachers or small studio teachers that we get to set the tone. We get to choose what we do. Much harder for classroom teachers. And in that in that regard, I say, yeah, let's set those frameworks up so that students can create and use their imagination. And so right in the first lesson, we've got an activity called the Animal Improv, uh, which is, it, it's just super simple. We use the whole range of the piano and the pedals. And we discuss with, you know, we explore with a student, you know, what animal might be this? And, you, you know, you can plonk down at the bottom and they say, oh, that's probably an elephant or whatever. And then you buzz up the top and that's bees or ants or whatever it is. And all right, let's tell a story. I want you to make up a story using these animals. And you do that in the lesson. And it, it is hilarious because the kids can, they can jump up and down or move or slam the lid shut because the thunder claps or, you know, whatever it is. It's just so imaginative. And then one of the activities they go home and do that first day is to go and make up their own new one that they can play you or their parents and you have to try and work out what the story is and what the animals are. So it's, it's look, none of this is particularly complicated and all the teachers that have used this have said, you know what, I was really worried I wasn't very creative or I couldn't do this and all of them have been able to go, oh, wow, I can do it, yay. And, and, then, and then, they, then they run with it and then they do even more cool things. It's very, very exciting to see. There are a lot of studio owners or school owners that in thinking about the business side of their studio or the promotion side of their studio, they have this almost an identity crisis of, well, what's my special thing? Like what is it that is going to set my studio apart? or my school apart. Mm. And the, and the um, advice I give is you kind of have to figure that out. Like you have to maybe dig for that. And, and for me, I remember the first five years that I was teaching a long time ago now, you know, I tasted this, I tasted that. I went to back when Randall Faber still did his summer workshop tours. I went to that multiple times (laughs) and just kind of soaking in material and, trying to get a sense of what was going to work for my studio. And what I would say is that this book is exactly the kind of resource that I think someone should be reading to help them get that greater depth to understand what it is that defines them as a teacher or a school owner. And I think it's something where a school owner could even hand this to the teachers that work for him or her and say, this is a resource you must read. If you're, if you're trying to develop yourself as an educator, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it could even be, I think, a topic of conversation 
in a round table, you know, Nate, you could gather your entire piano department and they could do a book study at the local coffee shop that's right around the corner from BMF that I went to in December and, and have a discussion around this, you know? I did, it's, 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 it's no book beginners to me is like a total no brainer to have on the shelf in your multi-teacher school. And Tim, you know, we, most of, most of our audience are schools with multiple teachers. We get lots of questions around how to get all your teachers on the same page mm. around um, approaches, right? And in fact, it's one of the main pain points for growing schools is figuring out how to create a, um, a unified methodology where while not everyone has to teach the exact same lesson behind closed doors, everybody is pointed in the same direction. Mm. Or has the right? same they all theme a, they or They have a similar kind of... Yeah, and and like I'm reading, um, I just pulled one of my, I, I highlighted a bunch of stuff in your book, and I just love this. I know it's not exactly the animal story, but it's similar in that <laughs> I love the quote from Georgina who talks about how they ended up, she ended up bringing in masks, headdresses, oh, yeah. alien costumes, and like just went all in. And to me, that's the result, Daniel, of what you're talking about. I buy five or 10 copies of No Book Beginners and I put it, we literally have a library at BMF where, where teachers mm. can pull books down. We all read it together and it's not, it wouldn't surprise me at all if next thing I knew we were doing headdresses and <laughs> when we were doing the storytelling or the round the world version, you know? So I love that. I think it's, Daniel, you're absolutely right. And just to highlight the one of the key points I think you made, which is that we're not, declaring this is what your studio is we are declaring that we're curious curious enough rather to actually go in and test things out mm, yeah right yeah. that's what we're declaring we're saying we're curious enough to find our why and our what and our purpose so we're going to take the time make the effort like you said to discover some new approaches. I wonder if you guys have had that mm. uh, a similar situation. I, I look at my members um, just on that sort of diversification or differentiation concept, which I, I think is important for studios, all uh, even a one 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 person studio, because there might be five one person studios on the same instrument in the same town. How do you differentiate? And and there can be kind of two mm. angles there. And I know um, Nate. I think I was listening to one of your episodes, and you were. You were talking about it was a super cool episode about um, how the parents uh, are in, so invested in what you do mm. that after the fir- after the concert they're already like let's plan the next one or they're already looking forward to the next one which is a year away and and, and so you've you've already got them <sighs> like hooked in and so like recitals with there's a, a member of ours in Perth uh, Australia who have this uh, group teaching studio and they do these. These insane uh, recitals, uh, concerts at the end of the year, like they're every everyone is in a different location, which just makes organising so difficult. One time it'll be in a huge theatre. Uh, they did one in a park outside, and everyone dresses up, and there's a theme and all. So, there, so there's that kind of there's business differentiators like that where you do an event or something special, and then there's pedagogy pedagogical ones. So. Uh, I'm setting myself up, sorry, you know, somebody is setting themselves up as the teacher of the pop music or the people that people go to for composing Mm -hmm. lessons. And I'm saying this this could be one, as you've said, that can be a differentiator for beginners. It's like who else in my area 
has such a creative approach to beginners that their parents are getting tearing their hair out with how much noise they're making, <laughs> how much they're playing their instrument, and they're coming away with a composition at the end of it. And this passport full of all these around the world is one of our things that you mentioned where they sort of build on improvs each week from around the, using motifs from around the world. Who else is doing that in my area? And if no one else is, jump on board and sell it as, as the thing that you do. And, and I also just want to say as well, what you've said is, is important with teachers. Teachers don't like being told what to do, which is why, uh, and I'm in that boat, <laughs> which is why I think it's hard for studio owners of multi-teachers multi to set a curriculum and say, you must teach this because it doesn't tend, it's really hard to say that to teachers. Uh, and so everything that I've always put out and including this book is all to say, here is an approach that I've used and that's now been used by a thousand teachers or more. It works. Why don't you give it a shot? And you can keep on doing what you're doing at the same time. This is a framework, a scaffold that you can build on on the side of what you're already doing. And uh, it becomes a little less um, terrifying or it's not quite the right word. You know what I mean? Like it becomes more accessible, I think. One of the things that I really appreciate the, about the book, Tim, um, and this actually, I'm going to go a little meta for our listeners, but I do often, So, but I'm going to go there, is that you reference your son, Jack, as an inspiration. Yeah. Right? And you taught, and you, 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 you said, you know, I begin to wonder, why don't we give opportunities for kids to just create things to take home in music lessons? Like right? they do in art and class. I yeah. want to, yeah, exactly. Like they do in art class. Um, first of all, I love the story because I grew up, my mom was an artist. Um, I grew up with art all around me. Whenever I said I was bored, she would pull clay out of her purse and give me like, <laughs> you know, those sticks of clay, the colored yeah. clay. She'd be like, here you go and give me clay. And I'd be like, okay. And so I just assumed every kid just got clay, <laughs> like when they were bored. <laughs> you know? so, How cool would so it be if kids got totally clay resonates. instead of phones today? World would, no, world would, would be, be a different like, place. That would be. <laughs> oh, man. No, can I say yeah. that would be a dream for me? <laughs> Anyways, maybe I can, but I might. It's your podcast, um, <laughs> Yeah, totally. It's a podcast, right, exactly. Um, but there's two points I wanted to make on that, and then I wanted to go back to something um, you just said, Tim. The first point is around this idea of finding your differentiator. First of all, your example of... Um, you know, the owner in Perth who puts on these incredible performances, like the thing about finding the version of your studio or school that's going to differentiate you from others is that it has to feel extremely authentic. authentic. Mm. And my guess is if I was hanging out with this, with this dude who was putting on these amazing concerts or a person or woman, that they actually are super energized by putting on events. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they are, My yeah, guess so is it's that actually that's a mother like, and a daughter. They own the studio together and they answer it. each other's sentences. They're go, 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 go. They're bang. They're, yeah, they're great. <laughs> yeah, totally. The people that you just like yeah, absorb so, energy from. Exactly. So they're putting, like, putting on events. If they didn't happen to run a music studio, they'd still be putting on events, <laughs> yes. whatever it was that they were doing. Yeah. You know? So that's the first really important thing. And when I read the story about Jack and you were just referencing art class, what I was like, what I realized is I was like, oh, wait, this is Tim. Like, 
Tim is look. Tim is drawing inspiration. This book is coming from a very authentic space. You're just like this is what this is why it's important to mm. me because I'm seeing it in my own kids. When we started Brooklyn Music Factory, my kids were uh, six and eight, I think, at the time, and I remember I had been teaching for years and, frankly, not doing a great job at it. But then my kids were in school and I was watching their teachers and I was watching them learn and I became fascinated by all the choices. You know, the pedagogical thing became one of my driving whys. Mm. I just like, that's why we started creating games right out of the gate and all these things because I just, I just was blown away by amazing teachers doing what they were doing. Um, but I want to go back to uh, one of your um, comments that I wrote that you said earlier around introducing this idea early on because what happens is when those students that go through um, your lesson plans and start going home, start banging on the piano, wanting to sing about elephants, what it does is it actually develops um, trust with that parent in the approach and the choice that they made with the school. Mm. Because they start, they start thinking, well, wait a minute, something must be happening here that's energizing my child. Because while I may not, I may be annoyed by them banging on the low end of the keyboard to be an elephant, the fact is they're over there exploring the keyboard. Mm. And so um, I just, I wrote the word trust down on my card because I was like, those first 10 weeks are essential, back to Daniel, what you said around retention. And so when we are looking for all of these, like, and Daniel and I talk about this all the time, but you're looking for some sort of like marketing hack or thing you can do to try to retain students. Let me give you a great hack right out of the gate that isn't a hack at all. Get the first 10 lessons right. Mm. Tim, I'm curious, what impacts have you seen or heard about through your members on either the kids or the parents of the kids after they've gone through this 10 lesson uh, curriculum? Yeah, good question. So, uh, and I, I sort of touched on some of it before with regard to that normalizing some of the things that we want them to be able to do. So in that, depending on the, the teacher, what what I have been finding is the teachers that really get into this approach and like you said, Nate, you read some of those stories that I put in there from teachers just taking this and running running with it. What it tends to lead on to is teachers, when they start teaching the method book, they look at it with a different lens and they start seeing things in there that aren't necessarily explicit and opportunities to teach or they may sing something even though it doesn't say to do that. Uh, for example, another example would be I always encourage teachers when students start to learn to read one hand, then get them to add a note in the left hand, just a note, and it will be a tonic harmony probably, one note, or it could be a chord or it could be fifths or something in the left hand, even though it's not, you know, said to do that in the method book, there's nothing stopping students doing that. And what you're starting to teach them is, yeah, there is a home key, a home sound, a tonic, boom, and that note fits with this melody even though you're only playing C, D, and E in the right hand. That kind of thinking, though, 
isn't something that comes up when a, when a teacher just goes method book page, 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 page right from the start. But what we've found is when they've started to use this no book approach at the beginning, they start looking at the method book and going, hmm, this is just a framework as well. It doesn't have to be the be all and end all. It doesn't have to be the thing I do step by step. And I can take that and go, you know what, let's clap that. You know what, why don't we put words to that? Because we do a lot of chanting and there's stuff in the, like that in, in the first few lessons. Why don't we, and that's kind of an off technique, putting words to rhythm to make it you know, in the body, bring it in the body. Why don't we go and bash this on a drum over on, on the side? Or uh, why don't we get up and move more? It just they're, they're just open to possibilities, I think. And even if we sort of fast forward a few more years after that, because we talk a lot about harmony and tonic and dominant relationships, teachers, uh, particularly ones that have been in our membership, can find things like my four-chord composing which uh, Nate, you were talking about authentic. Like, if there's something, mm. if there's something truly like the most authentic thing for me, it's about teaching kids about chords. I, I, I've even got the shirt. You know, I teach chords because it's so fundamental, <laughs> and kids love it, <laughs> and it's the basis of all the music that they listen to. So let's get into it. And you know, again, once they've experienced a bit of this at the beginning, oh, that's a C chord, and that's a G chord, oh, and they're kind of related. Then when it comes up in a uh, early intermediate piece or a late elementary piece, whatever it is, the teacher can go, oh, is it, I can teach, we can do some harmony stuff with this. What's that chord? What's this chord? Is that minor, major? What if we change it? And just, I guess, worlds open up a little bit and teachers can throw off some of those shackles that they feel like they might be chained to for no reason other than it's just kind of how it's always been done. Tim, you have a great quote in your book um, where you say the central focus of piano pedagogy when you're giving a history of it, which I love that part, by yeah. the way. The central focus of piano pedagogy turned towards converting students into performers, not creators. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I guess in, in writing the book, I wanted to try and work out why we got to where we are. Why are method books so prevalent? Why, <laughs> did, did Bach do this? Back with his students, and of course the answer is absolutely no, and he would be quite um, <laughs> quite shocked to see what, what happens now and the fact that people are playing his music and it's exactly as written and, my goodness, you better not use the pedal and blah, blah, blah. Uh, he, I mean, he, we know yep. that for anybody back in his day to get a job as a court musician or a church musician, they had to improvise. That was their main, they had to create music. I mean, we wouldn't have Handel's Fireworks music or any of the great pieces, Toccata and Fugue in D minor. I love one of my favorite pieces of all time by Bach. We wouldn't have any of this if they weren't improvisers and composers. So over the course of time, yes, we've moved to this position whereby once some of the masterwork started to be printed, people went, oh, I should play this. And that's kind of exciting. And, and we just went away from the creator model, and we just started playing the music that's written in front of us, even though we know. And I love teaching my students more advanced Chopin, for example, because he has all these little, you know, filigree little, all these things in there. And we know from letters written about his performance that he never played these things the same way twice. And so why don't yeah. we explore that as well? Why Do we have to get that trill like exactly as it's written? Why don't we, you know, give ourselves a bit of freedom? 
So it's been a really interesting shift and I've seen, and Daniel, you would have seen because I, I know you go to a lot of the conferences, that the shift to creativity mm. has has begun and it's been quite quite impressive actually how far some of the conferences and organisations have moved in embracing more creativity and pedagogy. So I think that performer model is still very strong, Nate, uh, and will continue to be as long as mm. we assess students by their ability to play Mozart and Beethoven and Rachmaninoff, not on their ability to compose something on the spot. As long as we keep that, then we'll need that. But I think we're, I think we're expanding. The creativity is growing and developing. Thank goodness. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just say that note you made there. I felt, I felt that shift probably around the 2018 to 2020 period where it just seemed like there was an explosion of a lot of people who had a resource or a tool or a method or uh, some kind of support system for teachers or school owners. They kind of all started poking their heads up around the 2018 to 2020 Mm. period where there's just so many more resources available now to the point that and this, you know, I know you're speaking specifically about creativity, but it's almost kind of gone to this place where teachers are beginning to get overwhelmed with the number of <laughs> options they have. No, it's true. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, and that isn't over against what you're saying. I just think that we li- we live in interesting times and in the same ways that social media has impacted so much in our culture, I mean, down to like major political movements, like it is impacting our industry. And, and I think there is definitely a democratization of the thoughts and perspectives. And it seems as if what the standard was before, which was kind of pushed by the universities, they're kind of, it's kind of losing its hold over, uh, you know, the opinions. Now, of course, I tended to be more in the MTNA branch of things. There's a whole separate kind of educator that's like, you know, gigging at bars on the weekends. And that was never my scene. Mm. Um, I was a little bit coming more from the, from academia, but, um, you know, that's why Nate and I make such a good pair because he definitely was from, <laughs> from <laughs> that. that. Was my scene. <laughs> yeah, that was your scene. Um, picking, go ahead. Pick, go ahead. Uh, pick, picking up on that point though, of the fire hose of information that's out there. Uh, w- one of the things I, that people have told me they really enjoy in the book are the self-assessments. There's three self-assessments. I don't know, Nate, if you yes, did these. I love those. <laughs> they, they've just been really popular. And for people who haven't got the book, basically you've got a number of, of check-in statements and you rank yourself whether this statement describes me or it doesn't on a scale of one to five. And then you tally up the answer, uh, the result, and I put you in some categories. And just to speak to what you were saying before, Daniel, about there is so much information out there. One of the outcomes of one of the surveys, uh, the self-assessments, is watch out for shiny objects because you've got a lot of creativity in your lessons already and you're seeing great results. Uh, You're the kind of teacher who loves your own learning, but the downside is that you also may be finding that you're so excited about new ideas that you try too many new things and end up confounding your students. This is actually a challenge, which I've tried to speak to by putting this framework together. So another thing that teachers can do is do too much creativity but not have it linked in any way not have it sequenced not have it have a purpose and so that's great and that's fun but I myself have fallen into the trap of trying to do too many different fun things and I almost lost a student over it it was a really valuable lesson for me to learn (laughs) actually and so that's why that's why the framework really puts the all those ideas into a structure 
So you're not going to overwhelm. And every week you come back and you review what was what's happened and you build on it a little bit. I love that. And I would just say that to wrap back around with the comments I made kind of near the beginning, I do think there's a time for going out there and tasting. And if you feel, you know, what am I going to be about? What inspires me? I'm not even sure what my identity is as a teacher. By the way, this isn't just new teachers. I've heard this from people who've been teaching 20 years Mm. who are having like an identity crisis. Mm. And they, there's a time to taste and there's a time to maybe, you know, go to every booth at MTNA. (laughs) And then there's a time where I think you do, you, you find what works for you and, and you do kind of have to shut your mind off towards new inputs. And I definitely have been in both modes in my career. In the last five years that I was still teaching, I went to the conferences, but I, you know, quote unquote, wasn't distracted by the shiny objects to use the words from your book. Um, and uh, I, I knew very much what I was about. And I still added things just at a much lower rate than mm-hmm. than what I had been in, in the first half of the career. You know, so there were some apps that I brought into my studio. There were some books that I stopped using. There were new books that I started using. Um, one of the one of the things that happened as a result of going to a lot of conferences was just there was so much more choice when it came to the kinds of books you could purchase in you know the li- the libraries that were there, mm. um, and so. I ended up buying a lot of books as many teachers <laughs> know when does. they go to events like that. Everybody does. Yeah. Everybody does. Um, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that. Nate, were you going to say something? Well, I just appreciated, Tim, I mean, that you sort of state very clearly, like we talk all the time on this podcast, like when you're, you know, when you're working on your business strategy for your school, and you're you you start a new project, um, you need to start with the end in mind, mm. right? Mm. So you need to define success. What's the evidence of success if I were to take this project on? And I love that deep in the book, like around page seventy, you're like, okay, when we get to the end of the notebook beginners, here's a list of what we seek to develop, and you're very specific. You're like, I want the student to feel confident telling a story with music. I'll just read a couple. Tap a rhythm and keep a beat at the same time. That's actually a tall order. <laughs> Love it. Sing and play common rhythm patterns, like what we were talking about before. Discuss how chords, patterns, and melodies can be repeated to create music. You got a really pretty nice long list here. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, I, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that and, and where you've seen more success uh, with this in terms of certain areas on this list that you see people thriving with consistently and other areas where it's, you know, still in development mm. or you're still just getting feedback. There's been a lot of thought. I have put a lot of thought into it. And I think in the book at about that point, I actually ask teachers, what do you, what would you like to have them achieve? Before I give them my list, I say, what would you like? And there's a space in there, write out what are the things that are important to you? Because we may not be on the same page, but there's probably going to be some crossover. You know, we, we obviously want students to be excited and all of those kinds of things and, and, and positive about music. But, yeah, those those key goals of, yeah, can they sing in tune and mat and sing back something? Can they understand the difference between 3-4 and 4-4 four, four meter? Can they feel that and demonstrate it? You know, some of these things are the things that I obviously think are important, 
because of, I guess, the way my own music has developed over the years and the skills that I've used. So, for example, I'm big, as I mentioned before, on chords and harmony and helping students understand the key signature is related to the scale, which is where the melody comes from. It's like a triangle. These three things are completely interrelated. And if you have students who don't know why they're doing their scales, then you need to make this connection for them because you they won't make it themselves. Uh, this is why we learn scales. Yes, it's a technical exercise, but no, actually, this is the this is the palette for the composer to create this melody. And let's go and find all those notes. And it could be a modal one, or it could be a blues scale, whatever it is. These are the kinds of things that have always number one interested me, but then number two allowed me to be a confident performer and sight reader. And I don't mean concert performer, I mean accompanist, for example, or someone who can just jump in and play something really quickly for somebody and get the feel of it if I'm thrown in and like, could you accompany this? I've got to sing this song for an audition. I'm like, sure, I'll make that up. That's fine. We can do that. Because I understand how the music's constructed and I've always done that. So that's something that I'm very passionate about helping students uh, achieve in the same way. And so uh, to your question, which was about do some of these things, are they more successful than others? It really depends on how the teachers use this book. And I say very clearly at the start, you can choose, if if you just want to dip your toe in, just grab one of the activities, like there's a frog and snake activity, which has just been a winner for anyone that ever tries it. Go and try that out with one student. Just try it out. Just do one thing. Uh, and I keep saying, suggesting this. And then when you ha- when you're ready, Choose one beginner and try this with them for one week and see how it goes. And then maybe you'll expand to two weeks or maybe even three. But it's really flexible and I want to make that clear and hopefully I did in the book as well, that you can use three lessons, five, or you can go the whole 10 lessons. It's designed to be 10, one lesson a week, but honestly, it could easily take many more than 10 weeks depending on how your student goes. So the long answer to that question is, it really depends how much of the book the teachers go through because it's so sequential. So if you're only going to do a few lessons at the start, then it'll be 100% better than nothing and you'll have a great experience. But if you really want to try and embed those skills that you just mentioned, you just read out, try and stick to, to it for longer. Um, I'm going to be honest. When I got to the end of the 10 lessons, well, I think you you go in detail on five lesson plans in the book and then it, it extends out from mm-hmm. there. But I was like, this is way more than 10 weeks of content <laughs> yeah. for me and my teaching. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Like, yeah. yeah. I was like, and this is, there is a lot in here. Um, can you give us just a little taste of the frog and snake, Tim? Is there any way you can walk us oh, through a little frog and snake absolutely. right here and now? Yes, yes. So any studio <laughs> owners, if you have piano teachers in your studio, they need to know this game because it's a winner. It's so good. So the, the purpose of the game, because we always want to have a purpose for these things that we do, is for students to be able to quickly recognize n- notes spread out by octaves on the piano. So all the Ds or all the E flats or Cs or whatever it is up and down the piano. Quick recognition. So the way the game works is the, the teacher uh, sits on the right of the student and the student is the frog and they're going to be bouncing between lily pads, which are the notes uh, spread out by octaves from the bottom to the top of the piano. So you might say, okay, we're going to be doing E's today. So they start with the bottom E on the piano and they have to do a nice big arch, like a frog jumping. It doesn't go sort of directly there. It goes big arch to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, to the top of the piano. 
Now, as soon as they hit the top one, you as a teacher are the snake and you have to chase them down the piano. So you're going to be doing a basically a C major scale, white note scale as fast as you can down the piano as they bounce back down on their lily pads back to the bottom. And of course, you're in complete control nice. about how fast the snake moves. So you might want to let them win sometimes. You might want to catch them and they shriek and <laughs> scream and laugh. It, it, has ju- it has never failed to put smiles on faces because, one, you know, once the snake jumps down, you can just grab their hand and uh, like, yeah, it's such a simple, easy winning game. Love that. Thanks. I'm going to test it out on uh, Little Miles tomorrow. All right. Let me know how it goes. And I just, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to know too, Nate. And I would just say, you know, there's a couple concepts here, and, and you know, we might be coming into the close, but um, one of the things that I've heard music school owners talk to me about is this idea of their teachers being, their teachers not being on the same page. The, the teachers feeling almost, uh, even within a department, fractured, split in in the individual goals. Nate, I think you even alluded to this earlier. And in talking about the amount of content in the 10 lessons there, this would be such a fantastic curriculum almost to just give the entire department to run that that beginning. Or at the very least, Tim, you mentioned this, like, hey, just start with one lesson. That could be your trial. Mm. Uh, we've talked, I think, back in episode 80 or 76, I can't remember which one it was, um, I talked to, uh, we had an episode entitled Five Reasons Your Trial Lessons Suck. <laughs> and one of them was that the teacher didn't, it was very evident that the teacher did not have a strong plan. I mean, this is it right here. You know, I read through those as well. And uh, I, I think that, again, if there is a lack of creativity or a, or a lack of direction, and I know I've alluded to this a couple of times, but if there's a lack of direction, this is one of those things where this could, this is a battle-tested way to kind of insert this in. And, I, and I'm, I just wanted to highlight throughout the episodes the various ways that one could take this mm. and insert that in there. Because this was huge for me when I was uh, a younger teacher, when I was first starting out. Um, I, one perfect example, I really struggled with younger students. And then when I discovered Faber, My First Piano Adventures, which... That book has a very creative approach to, to teaching those beginning stages because, you know, Randall was very aware that younger kids do not think the way that, you know, school-age kids do. Mm-hmm. Um, that really helped me in terms of uh, coming up with a, a way to bridge the gap for younger students or students who were kind of, you know, kindergarten to first grade level where maybe they weren't there quite development developmentally yet to handle the rigors of the primer book or level one, that MFPA book could stand in, in for that. And again, it was just, this is just one example of a resource that I got that was like, man, this is like transformative for the way that I'm teaching. So mm. yeah, I, I, to me, this is, this is one of those things where it's a resource. I think that, um, I can definitely recommend to folks. but If I can jump in just on that one too, there may yeah. be uh, studio owners listening who have uh, a cl- more classical approach or maybe they train mm. people for auditions or high-level competitions or whatever. And I, I just want to say that's fantastic. If, if you know what you're doing, that's great. And no doubt your branding and logo and everything will speak to traditional, professional, all of those kinds of things. That's great. 
there's lots of people running fantastic music schools on that. And if that's authentic, Nate, to use your word, then that's what you should be doing. I just want to say, though, that this kind of approach isn't just for students who are going to go on to pop teaching, uh, pop music or anything like that. This will improve musicality on every single level, including the reading and the classical playing and performing, because you're going to be switching on their ears. They're going to be much more attuned to what they're actually doing. So I just wanted to um, mention that. And also to say that if any of this sounds complex and too hard, uh, then don't fear because we have a companion website that you get access to where I'm at the piano delivering each of these lessons and you can watch me and you can ask questions and mm. you have access to orchestrated backing tracks for the improvs, all of that kind of, and the accompaniment. So it really is, my goal is, has been to give you everything that you possibly need to give it your best shot. That's awesome. And and uh, is the link for that website within the book? Yes, correct. Yep. Uh, that's what I thought. Mm. That's what I thought. Nate, any final questions? or? Well, I wanted to uh, love that episode that we did on five lessons your trial. I mean, five reasons your trial lessons suck. That's episode 80 for those of you taking I haven't listened to that one. I'm going to check show notes. out for sure. It, it's a good one. Um, Tim, uh, first of all, thank you for taking the time and effort to write this book. Um, I spent two months this summer working on a book for parents yeah. of a music student starting out. And so I am well aware <laughs> of the effort you put in. Yes. So grateful that you took the time. Thank you. Thank and um, yeah, so thank you for that. And I, you know, I just, this is just awesome that the three of us are connecting. Um, and I thought I would ping it back to you, Tim. You said when, before we fired up, you said you've been listening to some of the seven FMS podcast. I'm curious. Do you have any random questions for Daniel or Nate? <laughs> because you're so good at this. You're a great, you're just a great podcast host. And great I'm curious yeah. what, question, well, yeah, <laughs> what questions you might ask ah. us if there's anything from an episode that you were like, huh, that was interesting to me. I uh, thank you, by the way. And you guys have done a great job, by the way, today. It's been, I've really enjoyed coming on the show and, and being interviewed by you. It's been fantastic. Uh, and you've made me think, which is always good. Uh, the, mm. I, I really resonated with an episode you did. It was, it was the one, I think I kind of alluded to it before. It was about branding or vision, maybe. Maybe it was about vision. Because actually, my MTNA talk, I'm going to be talking about this book, but in the context of building a vision for something that you want to put out into the world, which could be your studio mm. or it could be a new something. And you talked about this. You talked about your – the thing I really loved was when you explained your Brooklyn Music Factory reason for being or I don't know if you – mm, Like purpose yes, and mission. That episode, I thought that was great. I don't actually – I'm not sure I have a question. Can you remember what the what you said the purpose was? It really, I thought it was – it's no doubt something well, you were quite I mean, familiar we, with. So. Yeah, yeah, No, well, we – I appreciate that that episode resonates. For Daniel and I, that's, that's something that we, we – honestly, we pound that hard because to, to us, um, or at least in my experience – at Brooklyn Music Factory, um, it's actually the foundation. It's actually like literally the the basement of your home, your building. But it's, it's also where it, you're going, every, which you talked about before it, too. Yes. 
it's where you're going. Um, but we, you know, we do at, at BMF, uh, we're a songwriting program, mm. right? So we have this, we, we work on, uh, our students just finished their season, their songwriting party. And we have 12 seasons of songwriting. So that's six, a six year journey to get through all 12 seasons. And, um, it's all original music. And then we use our big music games as a foundation to build the fluencies to the songwriting. Right. Um, and so for us we're always pointing to the same place, which is we're trying to give our students the tools they need to feel confident as songwriters and collaborators. Mm, that's right. And the tools they need, and I love what you said, I love that you're a chord guy, because honestly, that's actually one of the trickiest fluencies to really spend time on and find different doors into with students, mm. different types of learners. But, you know, our four fluencies are melody, rhythm, harmony, and songwriting. And so we're just always building those fluencies towards each songwriting party. And every songwriting party, we don't do recitals. We only do these mm -hmm. songwriting parties. And they're only collaborative. You're always playing in a band. And, I mean, truthfully, it's like you and I are kindred spirits very much in that way, Tim. Right? Because your four-chord composition quote from before that's like, that's just a beautiful, um, that's every day at BMF. Right. Like in our community room, we're, we're writing what we call speed songs every day in the community room. And so, you know, just back to your comment around resonating with the vision and the purpose. Um, and Daniel, you know, you did a great job earlier in the app just highlighting this. Um, you know, in what I know of you, Tim, it's so crystal clear. And you speak about your background as a player, and you speak about your why behind literally why you're still sitting here doing this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and it's beautiful that you have found the space and time and prioritized helping as many teachers as you have. Mm. Um, well, and I think just, well, I'll say one last thing on vision and purpose because we're talking about two different things. On the one hand, we're uh, doing whatever we can to benefit other teachers. In the case of Daniel and I, we're doing whatever we can to try to benefit those growing schools. Yep. Right. What like through our through the work we do. On the other hand, um, you are doing whatever you can to benefit your students, and those are two different hats, you know, Tim, that you're mm -hmm. wearing. Um, and so you have to get crystal clear on your purpose in both. Right. Yep. In in both. Uh, the work you're doing as a as a as a coach and a support system for teachers, in addition to running your own studio, and so um, just for me personally, actually, and I'll close with this, kick it back to you, Daniel. For me personally, on that, Tim, that's actually been tough work over the last ten years to be like, oh wait, I'm a business owner, and so I want to get crystal clear on what it means to grow Brooklyn Music Factory without losing my sense of personal why and purpose. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And then now I'm getting into like the, the work Daniel and I do, which I really enjoy, but being very clear about the why there and not trying to conflate the two things. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. Because they're different. Yeah, absolutely. And and those, you know, the audiences and the the people we're trying to benefit have different mm. needs. So, yeah, I wanted, I wanted <laughs> to just share this quote. It's in the book. Uh, and it speaks to one of the questions that teachers using this or planning to use it or studio owners, actually even more so potentially, uh, may have, which is what are the parents going to think if 
we're not using that method book and they were taught with a method book and, you know. So I give a quote in here. It's from an Australian composer and uh, pedagogy teacher, Elisa Milne, and she says the following, which I just think sums up what we've what we've talked about today really well. She says, if parents find this strange, this approach, tell them that it's much more important that you explore rhythm, pulse, creativity and improvisation before they start reading. I've never had a parent anything but thrilled to see their child exploring lots of sounds on the piano, using all the keys and pedals and having a ball. And that's what it comes down to. Hey, it's Nate again. You know, every year at Brooklyn Music Factory, we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families. And you want to know how? Because we ask them. And they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.